Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. Today, my guest on Housing Wire Daily is Logan Motoshami to talk about all the macroeconomic factors affecting housing this week. Logan, welcome back to the podcast. It is great to be here, Sarah, from the beautiful city of Lincoln City, Oregon. <laughs> oh, nice. I, I love it. I'm I'm still in Wichita, Kansas. So, you know, uh, great to see. Uh, I can live vicariously through you. <laughs> we have so much to talk about. Okay, I, I don't even know where to start. We have student loan debt. We've got the Blackstone news. We've got Powell and inflation. So where do you want to start? Uh, let's start with student loan debt, since that was the uh, big political economic uh, uh, talk of this week. And it is something very near and dear to my heart for uh, people that have followed me on Housing Wire but didn't follow me in the previous uh, expansion. Um, I've always thought the student loan debt crisis was one of the most overhyped uh, stories in our generation, only in context to that People said that millennials can't buy homes because of student loan debt and that, you know, all these people have 70, 80, 90,000 or 200,000 student loan debt. So what I've tried to do over the years is actually show the data. And we wrote this article. It's actually one of the first articles I wrote for Housing Wire in 2019 toward the end of the year about breaking down student loan debt with the data. And majority of people that have student loan debt are actually 17,000 and under. And the majority of student loan debt that are in distress, distress meaning uh, uh, delinquencies, uh, is about 10,000 and under. And the majority of that are actually from college dropouts. So this notion that college-educated Americans who finish school, who start with good-paying jobs, who eventually buy homes, even though they have student loan debt, that this was never going to occur. So, of course, I have to defend my own uh, economic talk. You know, the, when household formation happens and millennials will be the biggest home buyers, which there were 2020, 2021, uh, average student loan debt for home buyers, 30,000. The amount of income that people get from getting a college education or even having what we call as a DICE, dual income college educated households outweighs the narrative of student loan debt. So the the stresses are those people who didn't finish college, don't have a lot of big debt, but they have they have they have this debt that doesn't give them the income power of finishing school. That is where the stress of the data is. So here we are, we're going to, you know, take away 10,000. So a, a huge portion of the population are not going to have student loan debt anymore because uh, a, a big portion of them have 10,000 or, or less, or even even up to 17,000, you're going to still have a, a portion of that debt gone now. Um, but for me, it was always the narrative that if you went to college, you had student loan debt, you were poor. It's just the, the income power you get from actually finishing college and actually starting your life in a, in a forceful, meaningful path. And not waste your time in the in your twenties or thirties, you know, uh, just going into your job and 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 your wages grow every year, and then you 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 get the house. I, I've always wanted to fight against that narrative, and that's the the article that I wrote about it. Is hopefully shows people the actual data 
uh, and that's that's the key for reading the student loan debt uh, crisis is to know what 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 portion of the population is in stress and what portion isn't. One way to look at that is the fact that all those millennials have been able to buy homes means that you're correct, right? Like like they were still able to buy homes even though they had that debt. You know the. I think the main s- sentence that I wrote in that uh, article in 2019 is that you you have to pick a side on this. You can't be on the side that says, well, millennials are buying homes and we need to build a lot of homes because there's not enough homes for them to buy. And then also two hours later, go on TV and say, we have a student loan debt crisis. Millennials can't buy homes. That was a narrative la- in the last expansion. But we literally had people that like went in the morning and one part talked about, you know, we need to build more homes for millennials. And then like four hours later, they would come and say, we have a student loan crisis. Millennials can't buy homes. You have to pick a side or you actually distribute the data correctly and say, well, okay, there's a portion of the society that didn't finish college, that has this debt, that cannot, doesn't have the income power. A lot of these are tied to renter financial profiles. That is a that is an honest, fair uh, argument and debate to have. But you can't say that people who finish school, who have the lowest unemployment, who have the highest incomes, the highest assets, the high, you know, everything, and say that these are struggling in, in a generational sense and then have millennials be the biggest home buyers in America once they finally get into their home buying age. Uh, so that that's a disingenuous uh, conversation. My job is to situate the data to where it actually shows who's in stress and who isn't in stress. Uh, and and finally, you know, they they pulled the trigger and took ten thousand dollars off, which means a huge portion of the country actually do not have student loan debt anymore. Uh, whether you agree with that or, or don't agree with that, or you know, say you know the PPP loans were forgiven by the government, so who who are these people to even complain about student loan debt? That's irrelevant in my. Uh, economic discussion on this topic. So uh, uh, my job in, in that in that article really showcases the data for a very very long time on who's really struggling and who isn't. And uh, I, I've always said, college educated Americans who finish school, go to work, tend to be the upper middle class of this country. So much that the income stream of the median incomes of this country is actually split. We actually have. Uh, a higher median income base because we have more college-educated men and women, and especially when they get married, the dual household income power is is, is a lot. So uh, uh, I've always I've always tried to try to keep the conversation in an even keel and show the pros and cons of it and who is really stressed and who isn't. It's really a good point. Also, you know, undergraduate loans are capped at like. 31,000, right? Like for most students, but graduate loans have no cap. And that's where you see people racking up, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt. But that's also hopefully where you are, you're graduating into a high paying job. It's also like 0.6% of the total debt out there. You know, the the, the ones that are over 200,000 or 300,000. And also the, I mean, we, we are talking about like doctors and lawyers and, and people who actually make a lot of money. So I think the, it, it, the if, if, if people want to say that people went to certain colleges and those colleges were corrupt and they took student loan and it wasn't really worth it or, okay, that have that discussion, but don't, don't make it seem that college-educated Americans who make the most money in this country, who have the lowest unemployment, who have the highest wages, the highest assets, the 401ks, access to stock options. I mean, this is the upper middle class. So kind of let that 
let that one go. That's that's not a good argument. Talk about those who never finished college or whatever. Uh, in that article, I even write my own student loan debt plan, like how you would actually want to uh, uh, handle this. Also to the point that I would actually even have a commission to uh, actually, you know, the people that actually paid their student loan debts off, compensate them if you're going to take uh, uh, student loan debt off for those who didn't finish college. So it, it's 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 a much different discussion. The, the, the narrative is around political ideological takes between conservatives and liberals, but there is actually a macroeconomic story there but it's based on truth and facts and data. And remember, if economics is done right, it should be terribly boring. This this conversation has so much of a political tilt to it that you could get lost in the debates uh, on TV or on social media. Boy, that's true. So bottom line for housing, is it a win? Is Are we going to see anything significant out of this uh, uh, because of this? Not much. Not, not, not much of a story. Um, I mean, you, you, to me, it's renters that, weren't paying their student loan debt now that that's gone. I mean, in theory, you can make, they can have better cash flow. Homeowners that uh, have now a, a, a little bit more breathing room, you, you might be able to remodel or maybe do something to that nature. Home buying, you know, uh, on the margin, maybe, but it, it's not, it's not as big as issue uh, either way. Um, I, I, again, the the renter financial profile. I think that's 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 a whole different conversation because a lot of these people weren't paying their student loan debt. Um, but uh, it, it, it's not as big as people. Or if, if some people are making this a really big deal, I just I just don't think that's going to be a a really big driver of new purchases for the uh, housing market. Well, that really segues great into the next thing I want to talk about, which was Blackstone. So, you know, they're they're a big uh, single family house landlord, right? And they said that they're going to halt ho- home purchases in 38 cities, which has, you know, again, it feels like uh, people come into this, you know, looking at the political part of that. What's your take on that? Another overhyped story for the last, I think, God, uh, eight or nine years, Um and I, I always love I love this topic so much because I get to like troll the trolling people on Twitter. Um, institutional buyers, okay, whether it's BlackRock, Blackstone, pension funds, went from like zero point four percent of the buyers to about two point five percent. Okay, so uh, people make this to be much bigger than it is because it's a class warfare. And there's two sets of class warfare people. There's the anti-central bank people who basically hate everything. Um, And then there's the extreme progressives who also hate everything. Those two groups should merge together. That would be an awesome Twitter account. Um, (laughs) So, and... It's a it's a it's a class warfare for different takes. Uh, uh, the the anti central bank people say it's the Federal Reserve that's allowed these people to buy up all the homes. Again, if you believe in the beauty of math and percentages, that's not true. And then the progressives also say that look, uh, uh, this is just the the rich buying all the homes, and th- these are your landlords and stuff. Um, pension funds and, and Wall Street investors from 2011 to 2007 bought 200,000 homes altogether. Uh, you know, you're looking at for those that are renting out. Uh, that's out of thirty over thirty million homes bought during that 
time frame, God, that's just not that big. And the the reason that I I fight against this narrative so much is that the super housing bulls, right? The people that don't believe that rates matter or that housing could ever fade actually use this. They say, oh, don't worry, Wall Street will come in and they'll buy or they're raising 30, 40 billion dollars and they're looking to buy. Mortgage buyers drive this market. They drove the market in the previous decade. They drive the market now. So here's a good example. Existing home sales have gone from 6.49 million to 4.81 million. And now Blackstone at this moment is stopping. So where did the demand fall? It wasn't them, right? It was mortgage buyers. You know, the, the whole concept of my, you know, in the summer of 2020, the housing market can change, but it needs the 10-year yield to break above 1.94%, which really means 4% plus mortgage rates. Okay. That did not have any Wall Street or 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 the rich people buying homes in that equation. And look what happened. The 10-year yield broke over 1.94% after you know a, a lot of home price gains, of course, from 2020 and on. And that has driven driven the market. When mortgage rates fall, let's say hypothetical, let's say mortgage rates go down to four percent or under, mortgage demand gets you up. So to me, the bigger buyer always matters. This is again another class warfare ideological takes. And if you look at the data, just like student loan debt, uh, they're simply not big enough. So, the, so uh, I try to steer people away from that conversation with with the data, so they could realize when rates go up, demand falls. That's the housing market. When rates fall, demand goes up. Irrelevant to what Blackstone does or BlackRock, you know, as a percentage, you know, as a company, percent less than one percent, even just like the I buyers, um, household formation. Um, middle class mortgage buyers drive this market. When they fade, housing fades. When they come back, housing rebounds. That's how it's been since the Peloponnesian War. <laughs> Thank you for that Peloponnesian War reference. We're always waiting for that for our bingo card. Um, I think also context on this is that you know they did they they said they're pausing buying in in 38 markets in 38 cities, but they're still buying homes in more than 20 of the countries highest growth markets. And their their quote was that um, the markets that they're pausing and represent less than 5% of their recent activity. So even within the little niche that we're talking about, they're still buying in some places, right? That uh, sort of, a you know, they're, they're stopping in, in Boise, they're pausing applications in Boise and Fresno and Memphis and, and, you know, some of the areas that had some pretty, pretty rapid price growth. Yeah. And, and part of, part of, you know, the B&B market, that I want boring and balanced, you know, part of the, you know, we need, you know, we talked about this in February of 2021, uh, where, you know, we need higher rates to cool things down. And part of higher rates isn't just to cool mortgage demand down in a sense. Part of it is to also, you know, make investors kind of think, you know, we can't be so gun ho uh, into it. And when I talk about investors, I'm really talking about mom and pop investors, not so much of Wall Street. Wall Street, of course, has the capital and, and they're, they're smart with their money. They, they know what to do. But investors in general, to me, are always mom and pop investors. They always run the show. They're 90% of the market. So if there was a narrative about investors, you have to go, you have to, go to the bigger, bigger buyer, even in that group, which doesn't get talked about because, you know, class warfare against some guy you know in your neighborhood, really, you know, it's easier to say, oh, it's BlackRock or Blackstone or it's Wall Street. They're buying all the homes, you know. So it's not uh, – I, I, I know my takes are boring, 
They're not very exciting, but they're trying to bring the reality of math, facts, and data into it because economics wasn't really designed for these class warfare ideological takes on social media. They're just You just want to look at what drives the housing market, and it's really demographics, affordability, and mortgage rates, right? And when mortgage rates rise, like they did in 2013-14, like they did in 2018, and they did this year, demand falls because the mortgage buyer runs the show. And that perspective can get lost, especially from really bullish housing people that say, well, Wall Street will buy all the homes. They do not have the kind of capital to do that, all right? Uh, let alone, I don't even think they want to even do, do something like that. That's why their percentages are so small. The real big buyers, I would say, that you know, that really changed the marketplace was, you know, kind of the 2009 to 2012 market because you had a lot of uh, buyers that were buying cash bulk, uh, 26 cents to the dollar discounts uh, uh, in auctions. And those were the distressed supply and they flipped them right away. So you're buying at 26, you sell at 76, you're making some good money, you know, uh, in that. That that was, to me, that was where the cash buyer was was a higher percentage because they were buying in bulk. And then when the distressed supply started to fall, they started to fall, uh, uh, right. And so we do have this, this theme of buying homes to rent them out, but uh, nothing like what we saw from 2009 to 12, where you actually saw major bulk buying of distressed properties. It's a much different marketplace. There's hardly any distressed sales anymore for years now. It's it's a much different marketplace than back then, uh, what we're seeing right now currently. Well, and let's not forget, we always want to paint the, or or some, some parts of our media, the economy wants to paint these um, institutional investors as the bad guys, but they are the ones that the federal government was like, hey, can you come in and buy some of these vacant, distressed houses and rent them out so that you know we can keep this housing thing going after the, the great financial crisis? So I, I always feel like that's important to, to point out here is that <laughs> people are upset that, oh, they're buying all the houses. It's like, well, it's a good thing they bought all the houses at that point. Well, here's here's one thing. Here's here's an interesting talking point that never that never gets uh, uh, talked about a lot. Rental vacancies have been falling for years. Total inventory has been falling for years. And my observation for the last eight years is that most people on social media, or most people on TV, or most people just generally talking, have actually never read inventory data correctly. And so when people say, well, these investors are buying these homes to rent them out, let's just assume that there was no investors and let's say the home buyers got some of those homes. This would actually mean rental inflation should be much higher than what people are seeing. Because even with those products that were given for renting, uh, we still have massive rent inflation to go with massive housing inflation, home buying inflation as well. So this is a we don't we didn't have enough product per se for both, uh, but if if the investors that were buying the homes to rent out didn't do that, let's say home buyers had it, that means there was less less uh, product for renters to live in, which means rental inflation uh, uh, goes up. So in 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 a economic struggle debate, who who has the better financials in the history of America? It's always been homeowners versus renters, right? So uh, so. We got we we just got caught in a very bad situation in the United States of America where we didn't have enough homes for renting and we didn't have enough homes for home buying, 
and uh, we got squeezed in in a historical uh, inventory crunch, which still to this day never gets the proper play because it's better to have class warfare. It's better to go against the Federal Reserve. It's better for stock traders to give like hilarious tweets about massive supply going to increase, which they've done for eight years with terrible charts. Uh, that is more sexy to talk about than to say, oh, by the way, we, we just don't have enough rental homes or home buying homes. People who bought homes in America were doing fine. They're not turning over the homes. And we never built enough multifamily construction for this. So uh, even with the investors that were buying the products for renting out, they still didn't have enough for this massive inflation. Now, a lot of this also has to do with people moving from uh, wealthier areas into other areas that were seriously not ready for higher income people to come in, of course. But uh, I mean, that's that I think is the real story. But we like to talk about other things, and that's my job. That's why. That's why I love Twitter. That's what a part of me just wants to take on stock traders and trolling people and get them in a live debate, and then I could do what I do best: methodically bring economic data into a into a atmosphere where people who don't forecast sales or inventory channels because they don't have inventory channel models. You can see this by the, the way they write. So historically, they just missed one of the biggest stories in US history. And we had the biggest housing inflation story in history. And the real thing is the product wasn't there. And this is why I've always talked about, you know, 2018 to 20, 2008 to 2019, the household formation was going to be different. It takes to 2020 to 2024 for that to kick in. And look what happened, man. Boom, we just got hit on both ends. And part of this is people actually move as well. Uh, uh, even if there was no COVID, no work from home model, a lot of my thinking is that, hey, listen, you're, you're in your 30s now. If you need a bigger place, you're moving. If you're moving to an area you know, away from the kind of the wealthier cities into uh, suburbs or even small towns, boy, it, it, are, are those places ready for you? And they weren't. So I think that's the real story. But we get caught into these narratives where class warfare or Wall Street or the Federal Reserve, and it just it, 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 we take the actual real economic value story out of it. Those are great insights. Also, I just have to add how irritating it is that we have Blackstone and BlackRock. They need to have picked a different name because it's way too close to each other. Well, I, I, I always I always joke. I say, well, if Blackstone is leaving, what's BlackRock's percentage? You know, just to actually, you know, <laughs> throw people off. And uh, yeah, yeah, I always have to check that. Um, let's let's go now to um, we're we're recording this on Friday. Powell just spoke. Uh, you know, what's the next shoe to drop when it comes to inflation? And especially for those in the housing industry, what does that mean for rates? You know, here's here's such a interesting dynamic. Um, when bond yields started to fall, I mean, it, it, when we're, I'm talking to you right now, the 10-year yield is at 3.3%. In 2018, the 10-year yield peaked at 33 uh, uh, quarter. So what, what's happening is that the bond market itself is refusing to break out <laughs> higher. And when bond yields fell and mortgage rates fell, by the way, QE ended and bond yields and mortgage rates still fell one and a, one and a quarter percent. Okay. And for some people, they do not believe that could ever happen. It did. I, I would imagine that the Federal Reserve was very frustrated. The Federal Reserve, they won't say it, but I'll tell you this wants a housing recession with duration. 
right? They want a housing recession with duration. That was the Jay Powell when he said housing needs a reset. Reset, the R word is recession, right? So they need less home buying. They want inventory up. And guess what's happening? Inventory is up. We're nowhere near 2019 levels, right? 2019 levels, what was the four decade low? So there is a frustration because now the home builders are in a recession. They have 10.9 months of supply, 9.84 months of that are in construction. So that's not going to come anytime soon. And when it does, it typically has a, a buyer in them as well. So uh, I, I believe they were very frustrated with mortgage rates going down. They were very frustrated with the stock market going up. In a sense, that's credit not tightening anymore. It's easing. That means Americans are, are could buy homes. That means Americans are wealthy. They don't want that, right? So there was a uniformed approach to try to talk up the fact that they're, they're I think to me, and this is, this is my honest take, the Federal Reserve wants you to believe that they're going to hike rates and they're going to hold rates, right? Uh, uh, the market was already pricing in a recession and cutting rates. They want to fight against that. Uh, they want you to believe that they will hold rates. Now, I think part of this is they want time, right? They want to make sure that the growth rate of inflation is down or heading toward 2%. And I think deep down inside, they believe that in time, since the supply issues are getting better, um, the supply chains are getting better, and we see freight prices, all these things are falling now. They're nowhere close to being um, where we were during the peak of the inflation runs. The lagging indicator is rent. Rent inflation really drives core inflation for CPI. They're mostly P uh, PCE inflation, but the, you know, rent inflation is going to lag. Growth rate should cool down, uh, and they were they just want to get to that point to where we've had seven to eight to nine months. But today, they finally acknowledge that yeah, American households are going to suffer, uh, businesses are going to suffer. And this is this is the the reality. And I, I've always said this that they they need to come out and tell you that uh, this is going to occur because that's the truth. Uh, housing is already in a recession, right? People are already losing their jobs in, in there. Uh, uh, there are other businesses that are going to uh, lose their jobs. But as long as the labor market is still going, jobs are being created, industrial production is going, retail sales are still holding up. They have cover for this aggressive talk. Once that changes, that'll be a whole different conversation. But we're not at that point yet. Yeah, and he, you know, he was from my reading. I am not an economist, but from my reading of of that speech, definitely, you know, has some tough talk, making sure that people understand that you know it's likely at their September meeting that they're going to be aggressive again. Um, I mean, he Sarah, have you have you ever known a have you ever known a junkyard dog? I have seen junkyard dogs. Yes. Okay. So I so there are two kind of junkyard dogs. There's ones that will bark a lot, and if you cross the fence, they'll let you pet them. And then there's a junkyard dog that will bark and will try to jump over the fence to get you. The Federal Reserve to me are junkyard dogs that when you cross the fence, they'll let you pet them. So uh, I appreciate the uh, aggressive talk on their side. But when things break, they will fold. They will all fold. Uh, that's why I'm not I'm not a big 
believer of them. Um, and this is why I, I just want housing inventory to get back to 2019 levels. I'm actually more worried about mortgage rates peaking and then going down and, and, and inventory not growing back to normal again. But they're the junkyard dog that I believe that will let you pet them when you cross the fence. And part of my part of my thing over the years is reading people's sentence structures, body language. And I I, I see Powell's frustration that they 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 kind of you know, the whole inflation thing blew up on them. But it's also a group of people that to me are waiting to see the inflation data because they are trained to believe that if supply increases and demand falls, the growth rate of inflation should fall. That's that's not anything abnormal. The energy situation is different now. Of course, we see what's happening in Europe. Europe is in a recession. Europe has a Europe has a commodities war against them. Russia is at war with all of Europe right now using energy. Right, uh, uh, so that's that's a whole different ballgame. But in other things, supply goes up, demand falls, the growth rate inflation should fall, and we see some of that in the data now. I think they're just trying to buy enough time to get to next year, and then we'll see how it is. But I, I just, they don't, they none of them really seem hawkish, and will stand hawkish if the labor market turns uh, uh, on them. So, uh, it, it, it all, it's a tug of war. We've talked about this tug of war all the time. When I was on CNBC, uh, uh this, this week, uh, I talked about it's, this is a tug of war. If the fed really believes they need rates above 5% and they need inventory to increase, they need housing to cool down. Uh, that's, that's how you get back to 2019 inventory levels. Uh, so I can imagine that there was some serious frustration by federal reserve members when mortgage rates fell, the ten-year yield fell. There's no QE. There's nothing, and and there saw one and a quarter percent decrease in rates, and they do not want that to happen. So, from my perspective, what you said, you know, so yes, when the when they start to see the labor market slipping, they're going they're going to do that quickly. They're going to change quickly. But September meeting seems uh, likely to raise rates aggressively. Yes. They, they'll 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 raise rates to me. They want you know three and a half percent Fed funds rates. You know, but again, the 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 thing for them is that the the ten year yield is not breaking out on them. And this is this has actually been so much of my work on the ten year yield going back to twenty fifteen. You know, where I used to talk about the bond yields are just going to be in a range between one point six to three percent for the most part. And um, and really, the the long end of the bond market should be going up much higher. You know, uh, mortgage rates should be at seven to ten percent. The bond market's not going there. Mortgage rates aren't going there. Mortgage-backed security market is not. It's not. Is stressed, but we're not. We're still below six percent. Uh, so the we have an inverted yield curve that's getting more inverted. We have inflation expectations falling. So there's a there's a lot of things going on right now with the Fed. But the Fed has to uniformly talk tough, and that's why it was it was interesting that after. People, you know, took Powell's one comment a few a few, uh, a few weeks ago or months ago about neutral, where neutral should be, and, and bond yields fell. There was a team effort to try to talk up rates, and now the the team effort is we're going to keep rates high, and then see what happens. See, when they say we're going to see what happens, that's a junkyard dog that will let you, you know, pat its belly when you cross. If the Federal Reserve was 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 really tough, they go, hey, listen. We don't care if the labor market we don't uh, falls. We don't care if people lose jobs. We are here to crush inflation, even if it costs millions of people jobs. And I'm telling you that right now as a Fed chairman, if they did that and they held it to it, then that's that would that's a junkyard dog that will bite you. But right now they're just kind of hey, listen, we're gonna keep we're gonna keep rates up there, man. 
don't price rate cuts next year. Everybody's kind of waiting for that. They're, they're kind of seeing the uh, economy is in a recession, so bond yields should fall, so rates should go down with it. So there's a tug of war. That's the tug of war between the markets and the Federal Reserve members right now. So fascinating. We are here for all of it. Thankful for your insight on all of it. Is there anything um, else that you want to cover? Uh, just that the new listings data is going down faster still, which means that, like I've always talked about, nobody sells their homes to be homeless. Whoever tricked you people into thinking this, they suckered you really well. Homeowners don't sell their homes to go rent at a higher cost, right? Traditional home sellers, right? And this is part of the frustration of housing pricing. This is also what I talked about on CNBC, that I, I think the country forgot that sellers are traditionally buyers and they're doing well. So there's no rushing to the market. That was the whole professional grift act that started in October of 2021. And now we've had the biggest mortgage rate in total payment increase in our recent history. And this was supposed to be the ground base of at least 10 to 15 million households rushing to the market to sell at any cost. And look what's happened. We are almost in September and the growth rate of new listings are declining faster now than the last two years. This is the savagely unhealthy housing market because this is how function inventory channels have worked for four decades. And that that conversation needs more play. And it's finally... People are finally waking up to this now. Even some of my most bearish American citizen friends who want the world to end, they're like, whoa, your listings really are falling, right? You, uh, you were right about that. Yeah. And that's the frustrating aspect of housing. And that's something we're going to talk about next year and the year after that and, and going out to, because until you have a job loss recession and you have forced credit selling, homeowners are doing good. They're also not as soft as stock traders and people on Twitter or YouTube or all that stuff, right? These are pretty tough people. It's it's other people that think that these are panic-stressed homeowners who have lived in their homes for seven, eight, nine, ten years. They take their kids to school. They have sex. They do all these things that normal people do because that's what a house is. It's shelter. It's not a financial asset that you flip or turn over or anything. Not for homeowners. Investor is a different ballgame, but homeowners are a different breed. They're just built different. Right? They want to live in their homes. They have a comfortable life. They don't purposely choose to make their lives worse just because of your narrative or your biased against the Federal Reserve or your own financial stressful situations. They're good. They can handle it. Right, The whole premise about in 2021, right? we, we need higher rates to cool things down is, hey, homeowners are good right now. Right, that's the financial profiles. All those debt profiles and 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 bankruptcy charts and cash flow charts that I've showed for years, it was for this moment right here. This was the historical test, and look what happened. Inventory is not even at 2019 levels, right? And there's a story behind that. And once you understand how good the household balance sheets are for these people, then you get it. They're not soft, right? Twitter finance soft, YouTube crash soft. <laughs> Instagram people, soft. Homeowners, boy, employed, having sex, take their kids to school, eat dinner, have breakfast, normal people, not crazy people out there. And to hear more of, of this along this line, we are having you at Housing Wire Annual. 
Um, that's on October 3rd through 5th. It's in Scottsdale, Arizona. Super excited about that. You are going to be part of a housing market super session, which we're really excited about. We And we've got some luminaries at this conference. In addition to you, we have Ryan Serhant, of course, who used to do Million Dollar Listing New York. We've got Spencer Raskoff, who started Zillow. We've got Mark King. We've got some amazingly uh, big names. But I know that a lot of people who listen to this podcast want to get to meet you in person, ask you questions in person, and that's where they can do that. So they can go to housingwareannual.com and find us. Yes, it'll be a great event, uh, especially if Ryan and I have to have a conversation on stage. That'll be a uh... <laughs> That'll be interesting, um, but yeah, uh, I, again, I, I always I always stress to people: a lot of the best conversations I've had with people are when you come and ask a question at events. And uh, uh, I'm I'm going to be traveling the country a lot in the next uh, two months: uh, uh, Vegas, uh, Boston, uh, Miami. Uh, uh, so please, if you're at any of those events, feel free to ask questions because there are no dumb questions. The only dumb questions are the ones that never asked. Love that, Logan. Also, you know, you might give a really colorful answer as, as listeners of this podcast know, I think, you know, the junkyard dog analogy is going to be one of my favorites going forward. But, um, Logan, once again, thanks for being on. My pleasure, Sarah. How have the 2022 housing market forecast changed? Or how is the industry navigating the shift to a purchase-driven market? HousingWire's premium content program, HW+, answers questions like these and offers a variety of member-exclusive benefits that are tailored to what you need to stay competitive and agile in today's fast-paced market. Go to housingwire.com forward slash membership to join today. With your HW Plus membership, you get access to longer-form digital content, the Housing Wire magazine, member-exclusive rates to in-person events like Housing Wire Annual, and more. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.